This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yusin, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome back. Leadership in Action. That is us. You're on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 111. I'm uh, Mike Yusin, your host tonight. Uh, with that said, we're going to now bring on our second guest tonight. His name is David Rubenstein, co-founder and co-executive chair of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest private equity firms. I'm going to say a couple more words about uh, you, David, and then we're going to uh, plunge right in. You co-founded uh, Carlyle back in 1987, uh, and in recent years, you have been close to $200 billion under management, uh, 30 offices around the world. Prior to this, though, you had a stint uh, with the, as the chief counsel to the U.S. Senate's Judiciary Committee, the subcommittee on constitutional amendments. We will talk about that. I uh, see that the ERA is back in the news a little bit these days. And then from 1977 to 81, you were with the Carter administration, and you have worked um, in and around the White House in, in many other ways. You're very active in governance as well. You're a trustee of uh, many institutions. We will talk about some of them. But David, I want to welcome you to the show. And just to go back to your early days after you finished uh, law school, I think you actually had a stint as a lawyer. So say a few things about becoming a lawyer and why you are no longer in the law. Okay. Well, first of all, it's my pleasure to be here and be happy to be interviewed by you and and have this this discussion. Um, I applied to many law schools, and I was fortunate to get into all of them. One of them was University of Pennsylvania. Uh, but the University of Chicago showed up with a full scholarship, and so I needed a full scholarship, so I took that. I'd never been west of Hagerstown, Maryland, I think, but I went there. Uh, unfortunately, when they, I didn't really do it well, they sent me a letter saying, send in your $50, and you reserve your place in the law school. Then I got a letter the next day saying, send in your $50, reserve your place in the law school dorm. I said, well, I don't have an extra $50 hanging around, so I'll send $50 into the dorm people. They'll tell the law school people I'm coming. So that logic didn't work. So I showed up the first day, and um, they said, you didn't send your $50. We gave your tuition scholarship uh, to somebody else. And so I'm starting ready to cry. I don't know what am I going to do. Uh, my legal career is going down the, uh, the tubes already. Finally, I guess they didn't want anybody to cry in the admissions office, so they came out and said, oh, you can have it. So I've been so grateful to them for giving me a full scholarship. I've given them about $35 million in scholarship money <laughs> since then. So it was a good investment by them. Uh, I uh, think that people who are um, gifted lawyers, which I was not, have a passion for the law and really have a a certain ability to do legal reasoning. And while I did reasonably well in law school, I wasn't a Supreme Court clerk, and nobody thought I was the next coming of Benjamin Cardozo or Louis Brandeis. So if you're going to do something in life and do it well, you really have to love it. I knew I wasn't great at it, so I really didn't love it. And so I got out of the practice of law after practicing law two years in New York for a very good firm. And then after I left the White House, I didn't have any other skills, and nobody wanted to hire a Carter White House aide for anything else. Uh, so I went back to practicing law for about five years. But once again, I wasn't very good at it. My clients told me I wasn't very good. My partners told me I wasn't very good. And I knew I wasn't very good. So the good thing was that I was Peter principled as a lawyer, and I had to do something else. <laughs> and you got the message back early as opposed to midlife. Yes. And, that's- yeah, and the truth is, um, I'm now 68 years old. My law school class was the class of 1973. We're about to have uh, next month our 45th uh, law school reunion. And uh, most of my classmates are, as I read this class notes from the uh, alumni magazine, they're retired. 
In many cases, as you may know, law firms are now easing people out at the age of 65, 68, so forth. So if I was practicing law, I probably wouldn't be practicing anymore because I would have been eased out. Fortunately, I'm in a profession now where age is not a barrier. Excellent. Let me ask about uh, the, call it the right turn or left turn, as you decided you did not want to remain as a lawyer, but you were willing to work in Washington. Let's just um, spend a couple minutes on your early Washington experience. I know you're very active there now, of course, but you were deputy assistant to the president during the Carter administration. You were on Capitol Hill with the U.S. Senate. So tell us just a little bit about why that was probably, my guess is, a better fit. Well, after I, I went to practice law at Paul Weiss, and, which is a large uh, firm in New York, I went there because I wanted to work a bit for a man named Ted Sorensen. When I was in the sixth grade, John Kennedy gave his famous speech, Ask Not What Your Country Can Do For You. And my sixth grade teacher went over that word for word with me. And I kind of realized it was an incredible speech. It was poetry in prose form. It was only 14 minutes, but it really changed our country because it really inspired my generation to go into public service. So I wanted to go into public service. I didn't know how to do that, how I'd go work in the White House or Capitol Hill. So I read about Ted Sorensen writing the speech. Paul Weiss was a firm that had a good reputation. So I went there, and I did do some work for him. And I think he, at the behest of other partners, helped me get a job to get me out of the firm because I probably wasn't that good a lawyer and I didn't have a great future. So he got me a job with a man he said might be the next president of the United States and I could work in the White House just as he had. The man's name was Birch Bayh. And uh, he didn't actually become president. This was 1975. He was going to run. Senator from Indiana. That's right. He was a liberal senator, relatively liberal from a a conservative state. And uh, Bayh um, had, like most senators, uh, committee positions and they made me as his chief counsel in the Senate staff, the chief counsel for the Senate Subcommittee on Constitutional Amendments. And he told me the main thing is we're not going to have any constitutional amendments right now because he was going to run for president and have time to have hearings. So just make sure there's no constitutional amendments coming along. Um, and he had actually um, had authored three constitutional amendments, which is very unusual. Uh, he had authored the constitutional amendment for presidential succession, now known as the 25th Amendment. Yep. He had authored the 18-year-old uh, age uh, vote for for citizens, uh, constitutional amendments, and he'd authored with uh, many others the ERA amendment, which did not become part of our Constitution. So I basically learned a little bit about the Senate when I was there, and I I loved it, but I was only there for about a year and a half when I went to work for the Carter campaign uh, in the general election. I went to work for Jimmy Carter when he was 33 points ahead of Gerald Ford, and Carter won by one point. So his question to me was, like, what was your real contribution here? I was doing pretty well before you carpetbaggers came down to Georgia. On the other hand, as we have blurred many many times, White House staffs are filled by people who work in the campaign, not on merit necessarily. So I became, at three years out of law school, the deputy domestic policy advisor to the President of the United States, a job I really wasn't qualified for. But, you know, I, I loved the job. There you were. You're, I'm sure you rose to the occasion. Let's talk, since this is a program on leadership in action, let's talk about your observations Separating the Senate from the White House, uh, what does it take to lead as a U.S. senator in the Senate? And we'll come back to the White House in a minute. In the days that I was there in the late 1970s, Democrats and Republicans honestly talked to each other. Uh, They they really tried to work out legislation, and it wasn't quite as bitter as it is today. Today, um, it is very bad. Democrats and Republicans don't socialize. They don't talk to each other all that much. not that I've had a big impact yet, but to try to mitigate that a bit, I've started a program about five years ago where I interview a great uh, his- American historian, Doris Kearns Goodwin, David McCullough, about American history f- only for members of Congress. We do it more or less once a month. And we get members to come together. No press is there. And they can sit with people from the opposite party. They can socialize with people in the opposite party. And I think they feel it's really a good thing to do, but they don't do very much of it. Um, today, a good leader in the Senate is, or the House is considered somebody – 
that can get their party to do what they want. It's not considered to be somebody who has a great bipartisan following. In the days that I was there, people who had the bipartisan capabilities were considered great leaders. So today, it's really appealing to your party and keeping them in line. In the old days, it was getting people from the opposite party to work with you, and it's just different. David, as we know, a lot of people have um, tried to work through what could explain this remarkable development that you've just uh, so well characterized. And just um, thinking about your own thoughts on that, uh, why did we get from there okay. to here? What, what's been happening? I, there are, you know, PhD theses have been written all over the country Indeed. on this. I'd say three reasons I would cite. Number one, gerrymandering has made it such that in the House, you're either going to be in a safe Republican district or a safe Democratic district. And therefore, you don't have to appeal to the middle and you don't have to worry about moderates. So gerrymandering is one factor. Secondly, the rise of money um, has been such a factor that people spend so much of their time raising money that they're not there to socialize with each other. It used to be members would be there four or five days a week and they would do congressional delegations abroad. Today, the congressional delegations abroad are relatively modest because they get criticized if they go on them to some extent, and they have to spend so much of their time back in the district elsewhere raising money that they're only there two or three days a week. They don't therefore socialize with each other. The third factor is the rise of the Internet, social media, and talk radio, and that has kind of by, that has polarized people a great deal, and everything you do now in Congress is magnified. So you can't vote in a subcommittee today without everybody in the world knowing about it, and therefore people are afraid of being seen as cooperating with the opposite side, even if it means in a subcommittee voting the way that maybe your party leadership doesn't want, but you might think it'd be good for the country. So those are three factors that I think have contributed to this. David, thank you for the diagnosis on that. Um, a program... Our title is Leadership in Action. Is uh, Our program is devoted to helping people think through when they see a problem, how they solve it. We often refer to that as leading uh, leading the solution, leading change, and so on. Given your diagnosis, uh, where where's who's going to lead the charge to somehow reconcile these two sides, bring it back to more, uh, more of a functioning body? Well, I want to remind people that while it's not wonderful today in Washington, people don't uh, socialize with each other as much, and maybe they don't agree on things, and you have a very hard time getting bipartisan votes. Uh, the most important yep. two bills that have passed Congress in the last 10 years, the Obamacare legislation had no Republican votes, and the uh, tax legislation had no Democratic votes. So it's um, not a good situation, but I'd like to remind people that nobody is on the floor of the Senate today hitting other people with canes or trying to... <laughs> To, to, to kill people, that's been happening. It, it that's could happened be worse. Before. It could be it, worse. It's happened before. Yeah. We are not in a civil war. Yeah. Remember, uh, we went through a civil war, <laughs> and we've also gone through times when people used to call people names on the floor of the Senate of the House that are just unbelievable, and they would do other things to people that are worse than we see today. So it's, it's not quite as bad as it's been historically, but it could be a lot better. Excellent. We're more civilized than sometimes we think uh, what's happening at the moment. David, a final question on this. There are a couple groups or a couple uh, networks and uh, sort of movements within the Senate and the House. New, no Labels is uh, one of the names that's out there. Joe Manchin, Senator, has often been sort of in the center of that uh, let's find some common ground caucus. Uh, are you optimistic that uh, the, the center may be reclaimed at some point, or do you carry a pessimistic conclusion? I think the House is more divided than the Senate um, for lots of reasons. The Senate smaller. It's easier to get to know members. They're there for a longer period of time, six years, not two years. Therefore, not, they're not running for re-election quite as, as frequently. Uh, Joe Manchin is an extraordinarily good senator. I like him a lot. He's, he's in a tough uh, campaign because the state has gone from being the most liberal 
or our most democratic state in the country when John Kennedy ran, practically the most, I think John Kennedy probably got one of his highest margins in West Virginia, to a state which where Donald Trump got, I think, probably his highest margin. So it's, it's, it's shifted a bit. So Joe Manson, former Democratic governor and now Democratic senator, is in a difficult campaign. He's got three potential Republican runner, runner candidates against him. I'm not sure who's going to win. Um, it'll be a very close uh, campaign. He's actually a very, very talented senator. But right now, the effort to bring people together is something he's led with some others, but it's 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 not as easy as you might think. It's not something that you can raise money for that easily, and it's not something that people flock to uh, uh, to meetings for. It's just it's a tough, tough business right now. Great. Thanks. Uh, David, in about one minute, I'm going to turn now to the executive branch, but I do need to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111, and I'm your host, Mike Hussein. And we're in conversation with David Rubenstein, co-founder and co-executive chair of the Carlisle Group. And David, a few minutes back, we did reference the fact that you did, you referenced the fact that you worked in the White House. So let's just uh, think maybe out loud here about uh, leadership uh, of the country from the Oval Office. Well, obviously, we've had uh, many talented people be president of the United States. It's a great position from which to lead. Uh, Teddy mm-hmm. Roosevelt called it the bully pulpit. Uh, some extraordinary men have come to be president of the United States, and some extraordinary women never really had the chance because there really hasn't been an opportunity yet for a woman to serve as president. I think that um, today it's more difficult to probably be president than many other times in our past, and the country is fairly well divided, so it's not easy for whoever is president to kind of unite the country. But you do have an opportunity when you're president of the United States to get everybody to pay attention to you because you're the president of the most powerful country on the earth, and therefore people will listen to what you say. Um, I think if you are a good leader, you can get some things done, and some presidents in the last couple decades have gotten some extraordinary things done, but it's not as easy as we would like it to be. A question about the advice you might have for uh, our current president or those that you work with along the way, if they said, David, come in, let's spend half an hour, give me some feedback on um, how I can be more effective as a national leader. What, What would be the top of your list? I think the, to be an effective national leader, you have to um, talk to the people who are the key players, the key people in the Senate and the House, the key people in, in Washington who might control certain interest groups, and spend a lot of time with them. If we go back to the days of Lyndon Johnson, who was a very talented domestic president, uh, he spent a lot of time cajoling people, calling them up, whining and dining them. Uh, I've often said somewhat uh, facetiously, I guess, that we should bring back um, earmarks. When we had earmarks, we got more mm. legislation done because members of Congress would be propelled to want to support something. We've eliminated earmarks, and therefore we don't have you know, legislation rushing through Congress anymore that could be helpful. A good example of this, in my view, is, um, is infrastructure. As anybody who drives along the east coast of the United States knows, and I don't know if it's necessarily the case in all parts of the country, a lot of potholes. The, the bridges in the United States, we have 600,000 bridges in the United States. 200,000 of, of them are 50 years or, or older. We haven't built an airport in the United States in 23 years. Of the 50 best airports in the world, only four of them are now in the United States. A terrible infrastructure. Cell phone coverage drops in New York City or Washington, D.C. all the time. Why don't we have better infrastructure? Well, we don't have earmarks anymore. We used to call this pork barrel legislation, and nobody likes pork barrel. Everybody loves infrastructure, but we can't get anything done in Washington on infrastructure because there are no more earmarks. Now, obviously, I'm being somewhat facetious, but I think that members of Congress uh, probably could do a better job these days of recognizing that if they were some back scratching and 
your uh, and 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 uh, earmarking of things, we might be able to get some things done better than we are right now. To be president of the United States, I think, and be effective, you've got to bring together everybody and give them something and do trading and negotiating and keep your ego out of it. Um, you know, I think the great leaders of the, any organization have one of three skills. And Richard Neustadt, a former Harvard professor, wrote a famous book called Presidential Power, which John Kennedy uh, read very carefully before he was president of the United States. And, he, and what Neustadt said was that being president means you have the power of one thing, the power to persuade. That's all you really have. And you can persuade people by one of three ways, in my view. One, by being a great speaker, great eloquent speaker. John Kennedy was a great speaker. You can be a great writer. Abraham Lincoln was a great writer. Or you can lead by example. If you tell people you're going to sacrifice and they should sacrifice, you do it by yourself and show what you're going to do. A good example of this is George Washington. In Valley Forge in 1777, he could have gone to the equivalent of the Ritz-Carlton. But no, he stayed with the troops. And, you know, it wasn't the easiest thing in that, that winter. So men followed him, and they said, if he's staying here, I'm going to stay here. So learning how to persuade people is very important for president. And you can learn to persuade by writing well, talking well, or leading by example. And that's what I think a good president should do. Thank you on that. Let me turn that upside down in the following regard. Uh, we think about effective communications or, or a presence that helps uh, draw people in your direction. And that's on the affirmative side of what people have done historically. We see it. We've seen it um, in the presidency you just named. But uh, when it comes to um, almost any area of human behavior that we're familiar with, in this case presidential leadership, there are probably a few things that those who have been in the White House should not do. So that's what they should do. Effective communication. They ought to be out there uh, with the troops, so to speak. But if uh, you pick the president if, uh, uh, or maybe leave it without even a name, if you were to be asked the following question, I've got a lot of to-do things, and I also got to have a, I've got a shorter list here of what I shouldn't do, what would you recommend that uh, those we have seen in the White House stop doing? Well, I think uh, presidents um, each have their own style, and I think what they should do is, you know, obviously talk to as many people as possible, uh, lead by example, learn how to persuade people in, in ways as Lyndon Johnson did or other effective presidents, FDR did. What they should not do, I think, is probably um, get into too many fights. Uh, you make too many enemies. So try to not make as many enemies as you can and try to avoid enemies to the extent that you can. I mean, it's always not easy to do that. Um, I think presidents uh, recognize it's a much tougher job than they thought. There's no great preparation for being president of the United States. As they all say when they have the job, there's no way I could have been prepared for this adequately. So I don't really know that I'm in a position to mm -hmm. tell presidents uh, how to do the job very well because I, I haven't been in that position. I've seen President Carter up close, and he did a very good job in very difficult circumstances. And solving some of the problems he dealt with, there's not things that I would have been able to do any better. David, very helpful in that. Let me now turn a little bit uh, further in your career and reference the fact that you founded Carlisle, the private equity group, in 1987. Just to make a guess here, you probably didn't take a course on private equity in your law school days, nor as your undergraduate uh, major. And so what led you to think about private equity as the right place to end up? Well, the phrase private equity had not yet been invented, uh, honestly. Um, the early days of what now are called private equity buyouts they were called uh, bootstrap deals. Later they were called, uh, and bootstrap seemed not a very uh, appealing name, so they later changed it to uh, leveraged buyouts. But leverage didn't seem attractive, so they changed it to 
management buyouts. And then the word buyout didn't seem that attractive, so they changed it to private equity. But whatever you call it, um, this is how I got into it. Uh, I wasn't that good a lawyer, as I said. I really wasn't happy with what I had to do as a lawyer, and I just didn't find it appealing. And again, nobody's ever won a Nobel Prize doing something they don't like. You have to love what you're doing to succeed and, and really uh, achieve something of, of, of worth. And so I didn't really like the practice of law. I didn't really think I was that good at it. So I read about a man named Bill Simon who um, did a leverage buyout, as it was then called, of Gibson greeting cards. He put in essentially $1 million of his own money and made about 18 months later, maybe two and a half years later, something like that, about $80 million. So I read about that and said, that's better than practicing law. So I went down the street to Bill Miller, who was Secretary of the Treasury in the Carter years, and said, your predecessor did something called a leverage buyout. Why don't you start a leverage buyout firm in Washington? There are none, and I'll give you some legal work uh, for, you know, help you. And he said, well, maybe knowing my legal skills weren't so good, he didn't want to do it. So eventually I recruited three other people, and I said, let's start the first leverage buyout firm in Washington. I mumbled that I had some money. They left their jobs, to my surprise. I, when they came to the office the first day, I said, I meant to say I, I'm going to get the money. I don't have it yet. And so we raised $5 million to operate the firm at the beginning. And I thought it was just more um, financially rewarding, more creative, more exciting, and it was just something new. And I also read one other thing that propelled me to do it. I read that an entrepreneur will start his or her first company between the age of 28 and 37. And after the age of 37, just like a woman's chance of reproducing goes down after a certain age, uh, a chance of starting a company goes down after a certain age. And I read that when I was 37. So I said, if I'm ever going to do this, I better do it now. So I was 37. I wasn't good at practicing law. I read about a good leverage buyout. And so I decided I would take a chance. And I, one other thing I did at that time that, that stayed in my mind, it was this. Uh, you always have to take advantage of the situation you find yourself in. And so I was in Washington, not in New York. I couldn't just pick up and move to New York. And I wouldn't have been taken seriously in New York because I wasn't an investment banker. All the private equity firms have been started by former investment bankers. So I said, well, I'm in Washington. That's an advantage. Why? Because I, mean, I, I understand companies more heavily affected by federal regulation than people in New York. And it reminded me of what Edward Dirksen, a former Senate minority leader, said. He said, when you're getting kicked out of town, get out in front and pretend you're leading a parade. So I can, okay, I'm taking advantage of the situation I find myself in. I'm going to lead a parade. And I'm saying it's better to be in Washington if you're going to do companies that are heavily affected by the federal regulation. And that's what we did. David, a very gutsy move. Uh, picking up on what you've just said, no background in LBO or MBO would be the abbreviations of that era. No, no background in what's now become termed uh, private equity. Probably didn't take a course in finance along the way. You hadn't worked on Wall Street. That's correct. Uh, it is often said, though, that the very definition of an entrepreneur is you you got to you got to have a gut feel and you got to depend upon your gut and you got to have a lot of courage. So, what gave you the courage to do what you did? Well, one, I was 37. I could see that if, you know, when you hit the age of 40, people look at you differently. So when you hit the age of 50, they look at you differently. You hit the age of 60. And I, when I, I'm now 68. When I turned 60, I noticed that the women who escort me around the Kennedy Center, I'm the chairman of the Kennedy Center, they would say, Mr. Rubenstein, can you work up, walk up these seven steps or you want to take the elevator? I knew just from the age of 60 that people look at you differently. And actually, when you're 60, it's different than 50. When you're 50, you can pat yourself on the back and say, i got 50 done, I've got 50 more to go. I'll make it to 100, maybe. When you're 60, you know you'll live more than you're going to live. So you look at life differently. When I was get to getting ready to be 40, I realized, you know, when you're in your 40s, you, your career should be fairly well set, and you're not likely to change and do too many new things at 40, though that's obviously there's exceptions to that. So I was propelled to do something. I, it was risky, yes, financially, but I I just was willing to take a gamble. I didn't know how little I didn't know. Now, 
most entrepreneurs don't know how little they don't know. If you, if I now, now the situation I see myself in, if I realized then how little I knew about the private equity world in 1987, I never would have started the company. But people who start companies mm-hmm. don't know how little they don't know. So uh, Jeff Bezos is somebody that I know and I quite quite admire. Um, he was a um, you know, he'd worked at D.E. Shaw, which is, uh, I guess, a trading firm of a uh, different type of hedge fund. And he started this company that sold books over the Internet. And uh, he had no background in that, really. Uh, you know, what, what background did Steve um, Jobs really have in, in building a, a personal computer company? Uh, many people who start these companies, when you look at their original business plan, it bears no relationship to what they actually built. And it also, they didn't know very much. One of the reasons why... Great companies are often started by people in their 20s is because they don't know how little they don't know. Um, people who are in their 60s generally don't start new companies. It rarely happens because they know so much they realize it's hard to do. So I was younger. <laughs> David, we've had uh, a number of people on this program who, like you, started with nothing, built an enterprise. And they often say in the first 12, maybe 24 months, even 36 months, there was no income, zero. So talk about uh, those uh, early days and, and sort of the stress you no doubt were suffering as you didn't know what you didn't know and you thought you had a future, but you had no income for a while. Well, it was hard to convince people that we knew anything. So uh, in those days, uh, we were actually in what, what I call the 13D business. Uh, a 13D is something you file with the SEC when you own more than 5% of the stock. Now, in those days, there was green mailing. And we didn't want to be green mail. I was very concerned about my public image and the firm's image because I'd worked in, in government. So I just was very concerned about image. So I said, look, no, I don't want to do any alcohol deals, no uh, tobacco deals, no firearm deals, no gambling deals. Let's keep that all hmm. away from us. Secondly, I don't want to do anything unfriendly. And I didn't want to do any proxy fights and no uh, litigation. So, you know, so that constrained us a little bit. But what we started to do was we'd buy – we didn't really have a fund, so we say we'll buy 5% of a company, a publicly traded company. We'll go try to um, uh, convince the CEO that we should be owning the whole company. And um, we didn't want to ever green mail, but our first deal was a deal where we bought 5% of a company called Chi-Chi's, a Mexican uh, restaurant company. And so we went to see the CEO saying, okay, we own 5%. We want to buy the whole company, thinking he would throw us out of the office. He said, thank God you're here. I hate being a publicly traded company. Let's go. Let's go buy the whole company take it private. Of course, we didn't have the money for the other 95%, so we had to go round up the money. But um, in those days, uh, we were doing very small buyouts and deals that were not on anybody's radar screen. It took us about two or three years before we actually raised our first fund. And what we did that helped change the private equity world to some extent is this. Everybody who builds a company did something that somebody else didn't do. If you just do what somebody else did, you might not be actually that, all that successful. You have to do something different. You can be a, um, you don't have to necessarily be a first mover, but if you're a second mover or third mover, you got to do something that's different. Here's what we did. The private equity world was a mom-and-pop business, mom-and-pop. When KKR did the famous RJR deal in 1989, there were only about seven investment professionals there because they only had one fund. And that was because the partnership agreements in those days said you can only have one fund and the people in the firm have to spend all their time on this one fund. I came up with this idea, which won't strike you as brilliant, and it wasn't, but it was, why don't I build with my partners a Fidelity or a, a T. Rowe Price 
in private equity as there had been in mutual funds. So I said after we raised our first $100 million fund to my partners, you oversee the investment. I'm going to go out and raise, and recruit somebody to raise us to run a second fund in, let's say, uh, venture capital, then another person in real estate. And I'll raise the money for them, and then you guys can oversee the investments. And we'll just build a family of funds, and we'll centralize administrative tax accounting. And then the next thing I decided to do was to globalize it, to go outside the United States and have a team in Europe and Asia and so forth. And that doesn't strike you, and I can see from the expression of your face you're not amazed by this brilliance. Uh, I'm um, amazed. <laughs> but it was novel at the time of having multiple funds. And people accused me, they said, Rubenstein is building a McDonald's. He's franchising his name everywhere. But we actually controlled everything. It wasn't a franchise. And we built a global firm and a, and a firm that was institutionally um, appropriate because it wasn't just a mom and pop. We, we had enough people to, to, to really um, oversee this and, and to do the back office kinds of things. So that's what we did that really changed our firm and our um, way of doing things. Other firms have done this and maybe better than, other, than we have done it, but other firms have now adopted that approach as well. That's great. David, let's hold the thought. Let's hold the discussion for a couple minutes. I just need to remind everybody that we're going to take a short break right now. Stay with us. After the break, we'll continue our dialogue with David Rubenstein, who's here. Welcome back, everybody. Leadership in Action. That is us, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School, Channel 111. I'm your host, Mike Husseem, director of the Center for Leadership here at the Wharton uh, at the Wharton School, and my guest this hour is David Rubenstein, co-founder and co-executive chair of the Carlisle Group. And David, just before the break, we were talking about um, the accelerating experience after you kind of worked out your, your model, how you were going to uh, raise money, how you were going to invest money. And then today, uh, jumping fast forward over many, many years, uh, Carlisle, of course, is one of the largest private equity funds in the world or private equity enterprises in the world. How did you get from there to here? And since we're on leadership in action, how did you lead it? Well, I had two partners, and it's very difficult in business to have one partner for 30 years, but I had two for 30 years. I say difficult because rarely do you see people get along for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. The three of us have gotten along for 30 years because we each recognized our area of expertise, and we let each other take the lead in the, our area of expertise. I tell people all the time, if you want to be useful in an organization, figure out something that you can make your own and be an expert in it. And eventually, more and more power will accrue to you as more and more people say, this person is good in area A, so let's let him try area B. And he's good in area A and B, let's let him try area C. So when I started my firm, I didn't have an MBA. I didn't have any finance background, to be honest. I was a lawyer and not a great lawyer. So I said, what can I do to help the firm? My partners had investment experience, had MBAs. So I said, well, somebody's got to raise the money. And in the you know, um, totem pole of assignments in this world, you know, raising money was not generally at the top. Uh, the totem pole would be doing deals maybe or managing companies. Nobody really wanted to ask other people for money. But I took it on because I thought that's what I could do to add value to my firm. And so I made myself into a fundraiser. Now, I had always associated people asking other people for, for money as fundraisers as people that wore suspenders, that, that smoked cigars, that drank a lot of alcohol, that played a lot of golf. And I don't do any of those things. So I, I wasn't sure this was going to work. But I generally figured out you know, what I knew and what I could talk to people about. And I would basically have a concentric circle, start in Washington with friends and relatives. Then 
work your way into the metropolitan area of Washington, then start in the mid-Atlantic area, then start in the eastern part of the United States, in the Midwest and the, and the South and, and the Far West, then outside the United States. And basically, I would go to 60 countries a year or more, basically asking people to invest with Carlisle. And as when you ask people for money and for investment purposes, when you're not that well-known, you're going to get turned down a lot. You have to be very, very resilient. And so I, you know, I did uh, learn resilience. Uh, our biggest individual investor at one point was somebody who turned me down 10 times in a row. And every time I would go see him in a certain city in Switzerland, he would say, why are you coming back? I don't like your fund. I don't like to want to do this. It's not what I do. Eventually, he said, well, all right, to get you out of my office, I'll give you some money <laughs> once and leave me alone. And then he, the returns were good. And so he kept investing more and more. So, you know, resilience can be helpful. So I made myself into a bit of a fundraiser. And I also had a bit of a... Um, a strategic bent, so I would think about what the strategy was. I also tried to learn the industry. I would go to every investment conference that anybody would invite me to to speak about the industry. And if you speak enough about the industry, people think you actually know something about the industry. So I became a little bit of a, of a guru about what was going on in the private equity industry, and I knew something about it because I was traveling the world and I would hear a lot of th things. But I made a lot of speeches, got more visibility, and I was willing to do um, a lot of interviews. A lot of my partners mm -hmm. in the private equity world, not just my own partners, uh, were more press shy. But I figured, all right, I worked in the White House. I was used to talking to the press. And I was willing to give us the visibility of knowing the press and, and, and getting that kind of attention. So I did the strategy. I did the outreach. I did the kind of things that uh, people didn't want to do in, in the fundraising. And that's how I made myself useful. Here's a question we often muse on in talking about leadership, and that is, Virtually everything we've been talking about so far today are not something you're born with. The, the, the ability to, to bring people into a fund, you're not born with that. The ability to communicate, as John F. Kennedy did, not. Right. So where, where does that come from? You have raised the age-old and the uh, never-to-be-answered question, are leaders born or are they made? And nobody really has ever come up with a great answer for that. Take a shot. I would say that clearly um, some people um, who are raised in certain circumstances might have certain predispositions. If your father was a great athlete, maybe you'll be a great athlete. If your mother was a great singer, maybe you'll be a great singer. Um, if your father was a great businessman, maybe you'll be a great businessman. But there's no guarantee, obviously, of that. Uh, my parents were not college or high school educated, so I wasn't. I was, I was going to get some of the skills that you might want in business from them. But I basically learned that if you work harder than other people, you can acquire these skills. So I would read more than, than the average person. I would work harder. I would never you know, take weekends off, and I would just try to make myself an expert in various subjects. And ultimately, people think that you might know more than you do, and ultimately it worked out. But it was really hard work. I think if I was smarter than I am, I probably would feel I don't have to work this hard. Very often, you may have noticed in school, the smartest people don't have to work that hard, and they realize they're smart so they can get by when on, on just you know catching up in the last days before a test. If you don't think you're that smart and you have to work harder, it may be an advantage. And I ultimately learned that the people that generally work hard probably do better in life. So my theory on business mm. and life generally is hardworking people do better than not hardworking people. Smart people do better than not smart working people. So if you're reasonably smart and you're hardworking, you probably have a reasonably good chance of being successful. Now, lots of times, people who are smart and hardworking have some bad luck. But generally, I'd like to give my money to somebody that's smart and hardworking than somebody that's not smart and doesn't work hard. That's great. Thank you on that. Leadership, uh, we have a head start from our genetic fix, but hard work and so on, we, we can overcome some of the deficits we might have had early in life. 
And I think what you've also said implicitly is it almost doesn't matter what the field or what what the calling is. Hard work, weekends, you can master the essence. Yes. Let me, this is very important. People ask me all the time, students particularly, what are the skill sets it takes to do well in private equity? I say these are the same skill set skill sets that it takes to do well in almost any professional endeavor. One, be reasonably intelligent. Geniuses are not necessary. In fact, I've hired geniuses and I've fired geniuses. Geniuses are hard to manage. So geniuses might work out sometimes, but generally reasonably intelligent is enough. Uh, hard work is, is very good, number two. Three, focus, focus, focus. Don't try to do 10,000 things at once when you're be- beginning your career. Master some areas, so focus, focus, focus. Also, learn how to write, not just a tweet, but learn how to write the King's English. Learn how to actually communicate in writing. Learn how to speak so you can be effective in that, that manner. Learn how to be ethical. Generally, people who are ethical tend to do better in life than people who aren't ethical. Learn how to respect others. Learn how to use the word we more than I. Don't say I did this, I did this. Say we did this. We worked as a team. Share the credit. Ronald Reagan famously said, there is no limit to what humans can achieve if they're willing to share the credit. So share the credit. And, And generally, I also look for people that have a balance in their life. If all you want to do is make money for the purpose of making money, in the end, you're going to be a very sad and tortured soul. You should want to make money if you're in the business world so you can do something useful with it, not just to uh, acquire more homes or more, more planes or artwork. So try to have people work for you and work with people that want to do something useful with the money they're making if they're in the business world. Those are the skills I'm looking for. David, I'm going to pick up on what you've just said at the end as soon as I remind our listeners that I'm Mike Yusim. I'm talking with uh, David Rubenstein here in the studio, co-founder and co-CEO, um, uh, sorry, co-founder and co-chair of the Carlisle Group, a very large private equity um, group based in Washington. Uh, this is Leadership in Action. And uh, David, just to get back to the, the thread of what we were just referencing there, uh, I do know and many of the listeners do know that you're very active in a, just a range of causes. You work with many organizations. You give a lot of time and you've given a lot of money. I personally have benefited from uh, certainly the latter in that I've uh, walked the Washington Mall, which has been recently fixed up due to your generosity. Washington Monument that took a serious uh, hit when there was an earthquake. You've helped uh, repair that. And so just to now step back and ask kind of the the, the, almost the naive question, why do you give away the money? Well, uh, here's the reason. I came from modest circumstances. My last name is Rubenstein, a name that in many countries would not allow somebody to rise up. This country has been very good to people with my kind of name. And again, my family didn't give me wealth or things like that or access or contacts. So I rose up to the point where I acquired more money um, than I really need or than my family really needs. So I thought the best thing I could do is, is do something useful with the money. So you have four choices when you have a fair amount of money. One, you can build a pyramid and put all your possessions in and be buried with it and, and take your possessions to the afterlife. There's no evidence that the pharaohs who did that really benefited from it. So if you eliminate that option, the other option is you can just give it all to your children. But there's no evidence that if you would give a child a billion dollars, it necessarily produces a Nobel Prize winner. So I thought give your children unconditional love, a good education, 
security, but not necessarily a billion dollars. So then you have the choice of giving it away. And who do you give it away to, and when do you give it away? Well, you can wait till you die and hope that you're in some place in heaven where you can watch your executor giving it away, but I wasn't sure I'd be ever in heaven, so I thought I wanted to give it away while I was alive. And so when I turned 54, Forbes magazine wrote an article about my net worth. I realized I had a fair amount of money, and I decided I'd live two-thirds of my actuarial expected life. I wanted to remain, give in the remaining one-third of my expected actuarial life to give away the money while I was alive, the causes that I thought was were, were good. And Bill Gates called me around that time and said, would you like to join the Giving Pledge? And I became one of the first 40 people to sign up for that, which says you're going to give away half your money uh, upon your death or, or during your lifetime. And I resolved to give it virtually all away. So I do most of my money I give to and I'd like to remind people that philanthropy is an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. It doesn't mean rich people writing checks. So you can give away your time, your energy, and ideas. And most people, that's what they really have to give. And the most valuable thing you can give is your time. Because you, you can always make more money. You can always get more energy. You can always get new ideas. You can't make more time. So when people volunteer... That is the most valuable thing you can really do. But if you're fortunate to have money and you can give that away as well, that's obviously appreciated. In my case, I decided to start with organizations that were good to me, that gave me scholarships or gave my family some other benefits. Then I also decided to to do things in in education because education meant so much to me. It enabled me to get where I am. Medical research, of course, is important, and I do a lot of that. But the thing that gets the most attention is actually not the biggest amount of my philanthropy. It's what I've called patriotic philanthropy, where I bought historic documents like the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, and put them on display so Americans can see them and maybe benefit from learning more about our country's history and be better informed citizens, which might produce a better democracy, and then fix up historic monuments like the Washington Monument or Monticello or things like like that so people will visit them more and then maybe learn more about American history. My concern is that we don't teach civics anymore very much. You can major in history in any college virtually in the United States and not have taken an American history course. I'm absolutely convinced that very few citizens who are native-born could pass a citizenship test unless they studied for it uh, because we just don't mm. teach uh, civics very much anymore. And the, the, the recently, Annenberg, uh, which is affiliated with the uh, University of Pennsylvania, they had a survey that said it's hard to believe that three-quarters of Americans cannot name the three branches of government in our federal system. And one-third of Americans can cannot name a single right protected by the First Amendment. So we, I, one of my causes has been to try to educate more Americans about history, our own history, the good and the bad, and also to try to get people to be more informed citizens. And so that's something that I've done with a little bit of my philanthropy. And David, you've given money, of course, as we just uh, talked through, but you've also given a huge amount of time in your service on the board of the Smithsonian, uh, the uh, Kennedy Center, as you mentioned. And what what leads you to give that kind of time? Well, I'm very fortunate that I uh, have had the time to do this. I now chair the Kennedy Center Board of Trustees. I chair the Smithsonian uh, Board of Regents. I chair the Madison Council, which is the support arm for the Library of Congress. I also chair the Council on Foreign Relations. I was privileged to chair the Duke University Board of Trustees, which was my alma mater uh, for a number of years. And I guess it is that I feel writing money, running checks and just giving money isn't really all that I really want to do. People have that ability to do that, and they don't have other skills or interests. Maybe that's fine. I'm not criticizing people that give checks. But I just felt that I had more intellectual interest in just writing the checks. So I, I wanted to give the time, and I, I made the time to do it. Uh, and, and say a couple of words, picking up on that, on your own time inside the Board of Trustees right. or the rooms. So what does it take to not only be there, but to effectively contribute to what they're doing? Well, reading the materials is all very helpful. Uh, <laughs> showing up is also very helpful. Um, many people yeah. 
are on boards, they don't show up at the meetings. So if you don't show up at the meetings, it's hard to be that effective. And honestly, there are some boards where I just don't can't. I'm not a leader, and I haven't had the time to show up at all the meetings. I'm not that effective there. But when I uh, go to the meetings, I try to be informed and also to talk with people before the meetings and after the meetings and actually learn the organization. But it has to be one you really have a connection with. So it's not that hard to want to be connected to your alma mater. That's a school that gave you an education. And so I think many people like to serve on the boards of their alma mater. But I serve now on the board of the Harvard Corporation. I didn't go to Harvard. Um, I I just uh, but admire Harvard because I think Harvard's a very good university. My two daughters went to Harvard. And I uh, think that Harvard is a school that can set the standards. And so if Harvard does very well, other universities will up their game as well. So I am involved there now. And I, I guess I want to pick things that I think I have some intellectual interest in and will really um, get involved with and actually do something useful with if I have the time to do it. It's great. David, we're getting short on time. And I do want to take a final few minutes here to ask you to personally reflect on your career and who you are now and how you got here with an eye to advising our listeners who are maybe of a certain age, a couple decades earlier in their own uh, development, that uh, they would benefit from hearing your thoughts on how you got to where you are that in a way they could use themselves. Well, there's no doubt that luck plays a major role in life. Um, And I got here with a lot of luck. If certain things have happened, I hadn't met certain people, certain things didn't work out, I would not be where I am uh, today. So luck plays a role, but you can make your own luck. And I think, again, hard work, uh, attentiveness to what you're doing, uh, being polite to people, learning how to get along with people can be very important. I think what young people should do is try to find something they're intellectually interested in. Because if you're bored with what you're doing, you're never going to be good at it. You should also find something you think is useful for society. Everybody gets to the point in life, maybe not when you're in your 20s or 30s, but some point where you say, what is the purpose of being on Earth? We don't know how we really got here, God or evolution or some combination of both. But surely there is some desire that every human has to feel that they've done something to justify their existence on the face of the earth. And at some point, you say, I want to do something meaningful for other people. You know, there are 10 million species on the face of the earth. Uh, Humans are just one of the 10 million species. We're the only ones, I think, that really have the intellectual ability to try to help people who are members of our species, but not necessarily members of our family. And therefore, I think we should... Uh, look at what we can do to help other people. The greatest satisfaction in my life is not making a lot of money, but it's helping other people with the money I've been able to get. So I think people will be happier and lead a, a better life if they can help other people. And I try to say to people, look, somewhat facetiously, people who give away money, their time, their energy ideas, they are people who are happier. And happier people live longer. And if you live longer, you know, what could be better than that? Um, And then there's a special place in heaven reserved for people that have helped other people. And people laugh when I say that. If I say, why would you want to take a chance that I'm wrong? I could be right. And therefore, try to help other people. You'll live longer because you'll be happier. Grumpy people don't live as long. Happy people live longer. David Rockefeller, he lived to be 101. Look how happy he was. And so I think if you help other people, you'll be happier. It's selfish. You can be happier. You'll live longer, and you'll get to heaven. That's my theory. Excellent. And that begins, as we say, at the office, and it begins when you're 22 years old? What do you Obviously, think? when you're 22, you're worried about other things. Um, when you're 22, you're probably not as worried as you should yeah. be about what you're going to do when, in getting to heaven or not. But I do think that 22-year-olds or young people should find something to study that they enjoy. Don't study something in college or graduate school that you think will get you a good job. I like to remind people that the people that are leading the Wall Street firms, if you care about money, are people that majored in the humanities and liberal arts. They did not major in the STEM 
subject. Okay. So don't be mm -hmm. obsessed with uh, being a STEM major because you think you're automatically going to get a better job. If you like STEM, fine, but do something that you're intellectually interested in. I don't really care when I interview people what major they had. It makes no difference. I just want to see how they did. Uh, if you majored in a tough subject and did poorly mm -hmm. and you didn't like the subject, I'm not sure that's as good as majoring something you really care about and you did well in it because you care about something. So I, I tell young people to uh, find something they're interested in, experiment. Um, I didn't start Carlisle until I was 37. So try many different things. You shouldn't necessarily say at the age of 22, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. Now, Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg are unique figures. They started something when they dropped out of college. Don't try to be those individuals. It's very difficult to do that. Follow the averages. And the averages are you study, you get a college degree, maybe a graduate degree, find something that you might like. If you don't like it, then try something else. Eventually, you'll find something you really love. And when you love it, you'll do well at it. You won't, if you hate it, you'll never do well at it. And maybe part two, given the itinerary that has uh, kind of described your own life course, you probably have had a few people along the way from whom you've learned a lot. I mean, probably more than a few, I'm going to guess. But uh, pick out somebody, who, uh, maybe in the White House, maybe on Capitol Hill, maybe in law, maybe more in private equity in recent years, who really shaped your own personal thinking and your attitude uh, towards life. Well, there are many different people, and I would spend hours talking about them. But let me just tell you about a couple people that I have admired that I've had uh, the privilege and have to know. One of them is somebody um, I um, really came to know. He came and became affiliated with our firm as an advisor, George Herbert Walker Bush, former president of the United States. Uh, one of the nicest people mm -hmm. I've ever met in my entire life. One of the people who most taught me how to respect other people, how to be polite to other people. And he's just an uh, intellectually curious person, but a person that knew how to get a lot of different things out of life and get people to really like him because he really liked them. And he was very courteous. I, I very admire, much admire him. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to um, attend the, the funeral of Barbara Bush, who I greatly admired. I got to know her as well, an incredible person, and very sad that uh, she's passed away. Also in my firm for a number of years was a partner named Jim Baker, James A. Baker III. I think one of the most impressive mm. people who've ever served in federal government since World War II. Chief of Staff under Ronald Reagan, Secretary of Treasury under Ronald Reagan, and uh, Secretary of State under George Herbert Walker Bush. Know how to get things done. He was focused. He managed five presidential campaigns. A very impressive individual. And I learned a lot by getting a chance to, to work closely with him. Uh, in the business world, I greatly admire Bill Gates because he started with an idea, built a great company, but then at the age of 50, he said, I've made enough money, I'm now gonna spend the rest of my life giving it away. And I, I greatly admire what he did. Jeff Bezos is somebody who's built an incredible company from scratch. I remember when he got started, um, our, one of our companies was a little bit involved in helping him. I never thought this would get anywhere. Um, in fact, I think probably t I told him that, but he built this company and he ignored the conventional wisdom of what you could do and built this incredible company now. And I and I'm greatly admire what he's done as well. David, I take it from what you've said, a, a wonderful uh, set of relationships you've had with uh, some of the era's great uh, figures. There was no one mentor. There was no one coach that you've drawn from many, many people and probably continue to do so. Well, when I was in uh, growing up, there was a boys club that I uh, was in in Baltimore. There was a judge named Judge Robert I.H. Hammerman, who was a uh, city judge, and he had uh, a youth group, and I benefited from being in that youth group. Um, it taught me what a bad athlete I was because we were in sports teams. And I, when I was six, I thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. When I was eight, I realized I had peaked at six or seven. So I, but I played athletics. I wasn't that great at it. But it also had some intellectual 
uh, content to this boys club called the Lancers Boys Club in Baltimore. So Judge Hammer was a bit of a mentor when I was a boy. David, a final question here. What's next? Well, only God knows for sure. I'm 68 years old. So uh, the actuarial expectations would be that I'd probably, but having made 68, I guess I'll make it to maybe 85. My father made it to 85. My mother made it to 86. I don't exercise enough, so I don't know if I'll make it there. I exercise by osmosis theory, which is I have a lot of gym equipment, and I walk past the equipment hoping by osmosis it'll rub off, but there's no evidence that that, theor- that theory not, not actually so works. So if I can exercise a little bit more and, and, and lose some weight and, and actually um, um, you know eat healthy, I might make it in my mid-80s. So what I'd like to do is um, several things. I'd like to make sure my company that I help create continues to be successful. I'd like to uh, do some investing in, 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 in a family office that I've, I've created, uh, which my children will be a little bit involved with. And then I would like to um, also um, help the organizations I'm already involved with, trying to make them better. And, and probably, though, when my obituary is written, uh, hopefully in you know many years from now, it probably will say that he was the co-founder of Carlisle, but also a person who um, led the effort in patriotic philanthropy. And so while it's a modest amount of my money that I give away to patriotic philanthropy, it's the thing that probably gives me the greatest pleasure and for which I'm known. Because when I give away money to scholarships, of which I do a lot, that's not that unusual. If you give away money to education or medical research, it's great, but not that unusual. For some reason, not a lot of people have been willing to do the kind of things I've been doing in the patriotic philanthropy area. I hope more do, but probably that's what I'll be remembered for uh, 50 years from now when I die. David, uh, thank you for that. Thank you for being on the show. Really appreciate your being here. My pleasure. Thank you very much. So just a, a quick summary on my part, of a kind of a wrapping up of After Action Review, if you would. I think from David, I've got a couple, um, for certainly for me, very, very important points to hang on to. Uh, number one, even though it can take a couple of years, uh, figure out what you really want to do so you can do it well. We can't do something well that we can don't want to do. So find, find your place in life. Look for the right strategic fit between what's out there and what you're doing. Number two, uh, work hard, stay focused. You're going to get further with that. And then finally, in David's final comments there, uh, if we are able to make a living and bring some uh, support into the family and we have a little bit uh, extra, very good to think about not putting that into a pyramid, but putting that into something that uh, everybody around us uh, can appreciate and benefit from. So That is it, folks. Um, Great uh, to be talking, as we just did, with um, David Rubenstein, the uh, co-founder and co-chair of Carlisle, a huge private equity group, but he's involved in many other things. want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Desiree Bruno. I'm Mike Hussein, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 